And if you're a Christian, you want to be liked by the world. The only way you can be liked by the world is to be in fellowship with the world. But if you live for the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not always going to like you. The Lord Jesus is our example. And if you expect the world to love you, you're going to be sadly disappointed. You see, it's our otherness. It's our distinctiveness. It's our unworldliness that gives us the platform. And yet this paradigm is so different from what churches are trying to be today. They're trying to get the world to love them. And we wonder why we've got the largest churches in the history of the American culture, but are so godless as a nation. Because we have become so much like the world, we don't have anything to say to the world. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Doubt Before the Feast, in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Today, as Pastor Carl concludes, we will look at Christ's reaction to the doubt. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Now, it seems absolutely incredible that these brothers who had lived with him were not believing in him. You say they didn't believe in God? No, they believed in God. Remember, there's a time of transition that's going on at this point in God's spiritual history. Remember Paul, when he would go and preach on those missionary journeys and He'd go into the synagogue and he'd win some Jews. And when the Jews were won, he appointed some to be elders. Brand new believers in Christ appointed to be elders. Wait a minute. The scripture says, not a new convert lest he be conceited. Well, they were Old Testament believers. They had known the Lord as best one could know the Lord under the Old Covenant. And now they were completed Jews. They had come to a full faith in the Lord. And of course, there will come a time when Paul will say, God now has overlooked all times of ignorance. He's declared to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world through Christ, having furnished proof to all men that he is Lord by raising him from the dead. But right now we're in that time of transition. And at this point, unlike the 12, these men don't believe. Now what is it? that blinded their eyes. Interestingly, the tax gatherers, the prostitutes, they embraced them because they needed forgiveness. What blinded their eyes? Well, we're not told specifically, but I suspect it was jealousy. I mean, can you imagine growing up in a family with the Lord Jesus? Nobody ever had a brother like Jesus. While the other kids got spankings, Jesus never had any. He was always joyful, always kind, never selfish, always respectful. I can hear him saying, why don't you be like Jesus? Nobody liked the Lord Jesus. And I suspect that created some jealousy. Again, we don't know for sure, but we know this. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. If you were here during the time of our study in John 2 where we examined the cleansing of the temple, about a quarter of that sermon dealt with Psalm 69, a messianic psalm where the cleansing of the temple was prophesied. And in that messianic psalm, you have the psalmist saying on behalf of Messiah, I am become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Psalm 68 verses 8 and 9 predicted the unbelief 
of Mary and Joseph's sons. By the way, that was written nine centuries before the fact. And it's so precise, this prophecy, because it doesn't say, my father's sons, but my mother's sons. Because Jesus was not the son of Joseph. He was the son of God. But praise the Lord, these men ultimately, as you see in the upper room, Acts 1 and verse 14, come to faith after the resurrection of Christ. So there's the setting for the doubt. There's the brothers who do the doubt. Finally, I want you to consider Christ's reaction to their doubt. Look now, if you will, at his response in verse 6. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. Now, there are two words in the original language of the New Testament that are translated time. One kairos that speaks quantitatively, like the time is 12 o'clock. And then there's a second word that speaks quantitatively, kairos, which is the word that's used here, that's used in reference to the events that take place within that time. Jesus is saying it's not the right time. It's not the best time. It's not the favorable time for me to do what you want me to do. Now, it may have been an opportune time for them, but it was not the right time for him. He said, I will manifest myself at the right time and no sooner. Jesus will ultimately do that. Now, think about how this whole thing happened. The first time he came into the city, he cleansed the temple. Really an open manifestation. And the seeds for hatred were planted. Second time, he comes into the city, less public, heals one man at the pool of Bethesda. Man, they really hate him then. Third time, he comes into the city. He comes in undercover to the Feast of Booths. Very low key teaches them the word of God, nothing spectacular. The next time he will come, at the right time, in the fullness of time, he will come open like he had never come before. He will come riding on a donkey on that Palm Sunday. He will present himself to Israel as their Messiah. The multitudes will say, hail him, hail him, hail him. But a few days later, they will say, nail him. Nail him. Nail him. The Lord was operating on a divine timetable. My time is not yet at hand. When you come to verse 30 of this chapter, they are seeking to seize him, and no man could lay a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, these things he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, it changes, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, because the path of glory is through the path of suffering. Now my soul has become troubled, and what, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, why? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Humanly speaking, he says, I wish I could get out of it. But I was born for this hour. He was born to die. He had a destiny from eternity past, and he had to go there at just the right time, in the fullness of time, at the very hour that God wanted him crucified. When we come to the Passion accounts, we will see on that Passover at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at the precise time, Jesus dies. 
My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. I'm on a divine schedule. You're not. That's what he's saying. Now, there's a lesson here for us. If you are a believer, you too are on a divine timetable. Now, unsaved people, unlike the child of God, have real no divine timetable. Your life, if you're unsaved here and not yet born again, it's just a random. You're just loving. God doesn't have a plan for your life yet until you come to faith in Christ. In fact, the only appointment that's on your timetable is your appointment with death, for it's appointed for all men to die. And Psalm 139 says, even before you lived a single day, God recorded the day of your death. But his brothers and sisters, yeah, you guys go on up. You're not on a divine timetable. Why? Because they're a part of this world. But the believer, it's different. And so Paul will say to the church at Ephesus to redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil. If you are a believer, you are a part of God's redemptive schedule. And some of us need to be reminded that this is the first day of the rest of our life. If there's been failure, there's grace to cleanse, to forgive, and to give you a brand new start. Now look at verse 7. He further explains why they can go at any time. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. He's saying it may be an opportune tune for you, but it's not for me. And the reason is because this world, this worldly mindset that you have for me to go up there and make this great display of miraculous power, that world that you love, it hates me. That world that you're in fellowship in with, I'm not. It's a problem for me. Why? Because they hate me. He's the light of the world. And when the light shows up, it reveals sin. And that's why some people won't like you. Because you will reflect the Lord Jesus and they will see in you what they ought to be and they'll be convicted. He will later say, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Listen, if everybody loves me, I know I'm doing something wrong. If you live for the Lord Jesus... Young person, I hope you're hearing me. There's going to be some folks who just don't like you. So he says to his brother, a very gracious answer in verse 8, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. Now you read that verse and you may scratch your hand ahead and it seems to say, well, he's not going. He's not going to go to the feast. Then you come down to verse 10 and it says he goes. Well, what is it? Well, the liberal theologians say... A, he either lied, or B, they say this is a contradiction in the Bible. No, as I pointed out to you, the word that he uses for time, my time is not yet in hand, is the word that doesn't refer to a specific hour, but to a season of time. The word for a right opportunity. We might say today, for the right psychological moment. And those of you who are in sales, you know there's that right moment. Okay, now's the time to get them to put the signature at the bottom of the contract. That's what the word kairos means. In light of their hatred and in light of the Father's plan and schedule for Jesus Christ, it was not the opportune time for him to go. If he had done it, maybe his brothers would have spread the information he's here and it would have resulted in a premature death. He knew what he was doing, verse 9. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But after his family had gone, we learn, verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast... 
then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. By the way, this is a beautiful illustration of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In the sovereign plan of God, no one could kill Christ before it was time. And yet he doesn't test the Father, so to speak. He doesn't go up early, nor does he lag behind. But because he is sensitive to the work of the Spirit within his life, he goes up at just the right time. Again, there were three visits. The first time he came in with a whip and the seeds were sown. He arrived and they knew it. The second time he does that miracle at the pool of Bethesda. And after he does that miracle, because he does it on a Sabbath day, and they ask the man to pick up his mat, and they call that work, we read in John 5, 18, for this cause, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in light of the anger of the day, he's going to go at just the right time. Well, his brothers get there. And the Lord Jesus is not with them, and so they go ballistic. Look at verse 11. The Jews, these leaders, therefore were seeking him at the feast, and were saying, where is he? Now remember the term the Jews typically is used by John not to refer to all Jews in general, but typically to a certain subset of Jews, namely the religious leaders. Someone asked me last week, you've said that a few times, where do you get that? Well, a number of places. Let me just review for a second. Remember in John 1.19, John the Baptist is out there preaching. And we read, and this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem, and they ask him, who are you? And they ask him all these questions, and all he tells them is who he's not. And so they say, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. Now the Jews sent us. We need to give an answer to them. What do you say about yourself? And then we're told in verse 24 of that chapter, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So the Jews, as John uses it, is the religious leaders. That's going to become very important for you to understand what's going to follow in the next two weeks. And so when John here mentions in verse 11, the Jews, he is using it to speak of those hypocritical, pharisaical leaders. And so they want to know, where is he? They hate him. They want to kill him. Don't tell us you came down here without him. Where is he? He's the topic of conversation, whether he's there or not. He had made a fantastic impression wherever he went. Now their reaction is really open, and it's going to grow. Look at verse 12. And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him, Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Some were grumbling, rah, 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 you know, just, uh. Others were saying, hey, he's a good guy. Others were saying, no, he's a deceiver. He's leading the people the wrong way, down the wrong path. Well, which is he? Is he a good man or is he a deceiver? Well, they were both wrong because people who are only good men don't claim to be God. Only crazy people do that. And deceivers who claim to be God don't have the fruit of the life to prove it. So they're mumbling, they're grumbling. Who is Jesus Christ? Yet, we're told, no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Why were they afraid of these Jews, these religious leaders? Because these Jews had some power. They had their own MPs. They had the temple police. 
And if you didn't agree with the leadership, friend, you were booted out. You were gone. You know, we read that verse in Hebrews 10, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but all the more encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near and we say, you know, we're supposed to be with God's people and the Lord's day in church on Sunday. You know, God commands it and we ought to be here. And, and that's a legitimate application, but understand why they were forsaking their assembling in the book of Hebrews, a book written to Jewish believers. Because if you are Jewish and you openly identified with Jesus as the true Messiah, you were cut off from the people. Some parents would hold a funeral, even like they do to this day. When some Jewish people come to faith, some parents will literally hold a funeral and say, we disown you, we no longer have a son. They would cut you out of all of the financial interplay in these close communities that the people had. Now, these first 13 verses are introductory. There's not a lot of high-powered doctrine in them, but they're here for a reason, and all Scripture is beneficial for us. Let me give you three applications as we close this morning. Number one, do not forget that you too, if you've been saved, that you too are on a divine timetable. So invest your time well. Paul told both the church at Ephesus and the church at Coloss to redeem the time because the days are evil. In Christ, the one whom we are called to follow is to be our example. Now, this doesn't mean that you work 24-7 and never have time to rest and relax. Jesus would take his disciples away to a quiet place. He said, come apart to a quiet place. He knew that if they did not come apart, they would ultimately come apart. But that is not typically the problem in affluent America where we spend the bulk of our free time entertaining ourselves and giving little thought to the kingdom of God. And so when Paul tells the Ephesians to make the most of his time, their time because the days are evil, he does it in the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit. When he writes to the church at Coloss and he tells them to make the most of their time because the days are evil, he does it in the context of being filled with the Word. Because God knows if you are filled with the Spirit and you are filled with the Word, because the degree to which you are filled with the Spirit is the degree to which you are operating under the dictates of God's Word, because the Spirit of God in your life doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in accordance with truth. And if you are filled with the Spirit and you are filled with the Word, then you will have the discernment on when to rest, when to use the time and direct ministry, when to share your faith, when not to share your faith, and your life begins to take on eternal significance. We're to follow the Lord. He's our model. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you to be filled with the Spirit and to be filled with the Word. Some of us, our minds are so filled with our own aspirations, with the world's music, with the world's media, with the world's music, with the world's monetary system, that we're living only for the here and now. We've got our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But in things of real eternal value, we're not doing that much. So number one, don't forget that you are on a divine schedule. And we need to be sensitive to the Lord to live out that schedule. Number two, because you are not of this world, you will not be liked by this world. Because you're not of it, you won't be liked by it. Jesus plainly says in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it. 
that its deeds are evil. So the Lord in that verse really reveals the true nature of things. The world is called the enemy of God by the Apostle Paul. This is the 15th time that he uses this word cosmos that is translated world. And it means different things in different contexts, just like our English words very often take on an entirely different meaning in a different context. Sometimes the word world refers to the whole universe. John's used it that way in John 1 and verse 10, where it says the world, the universe, was made through him. Sometimes it's used to refer to all the people of the world, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But here, it's in reference to the world's mindset, to the world's philosophy, to the, to the God of this world, small g, Satan, who is energizing the sons of disobedience, who is legislating a philosophy and a worldview that is different from God's view. That's why John will write in his first letter, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world's passing away. The world's philosophies, the world's goals, the world's pleasures, the world's organizations are opposed to God unless they've been salted by the body of Christ. And that's why we shouldn't try to get the world to love us. Seven of us and our staff, we went up to a conference in Charleston and it was not what we thought, but in God's providence, he brought us there. And anyway, we had a discussion with all these people from different churches. And one of the questions was, is, what would you like your community, the world, to think of you? One lady said, well, we would really like our community to, to like us, to love us. And there was actually a couple of answers along those lines. Listen, it doesn't work that way. And if you're a Christian, you want to be liked by the world. The only way you can be liked by the world is to be in fellowship with the world. But if you live for the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not always going to like you. The Lord Jesus is our example. And if you expect the world to love you, you're going to be sadly disappointed you see, it's our otherness. It's our distinctiveness. It's our unworldliness that gives us the platform. And yet this paradigm is so different from what churches are trying to be today. They're trying to get the world to love them. And we wonder why we've got the largest churches in the history of the American culture, but are so godless as a nation. Because we have become so much like the world, we don't have anything to say to the world. You are the salt of the world. But if you've become unsalty, with what will it be savored? You are the light of the world. But if you put the light under a basket, there's no light to shine. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first, he said. If you're of the world, they love it's you. But you're not of it. Remember what I said to you. A slave's not greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Now, there's a third application that I draw from this passage, and it is this. Religious activity. Religious activity is no substitute for a relationship with the Lord. Very often when you speak to people about the Lord, they'll say, you know, I'm, I've been baptized, or, you know, I'm a good churchgoer. 
Or sometimes they'll say, you know, uh, I'm a member of such and such church. Or they'll talk about, you know, my uncle's a preacher. And they get off on their uncle. Or my granddaddy was a preacher. Or my dad, my, 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 my brother's a preacher. Or whatever it may be. And somehow they are under the false illusion that religious activity or being related to people somehow makes them right with God. Hey, Christ's own brothers, they were religious. They're going up to the feast. But they leave the Lord back home. Had they been sensitive, they thought, you know, he is Messiah. When he goes, we'll go. After all, the feast is all about him. But they were unbelievers at this point. You can do religious things even as a Christian, but without the Lord. And were these people associated? They were carried in the same womb that Jesus was born from. But that didn't make him right. Where are you today? Doesn't matter how religious you are. Doesn't matter if your granddaddy was a preacher. And if you're saved, it doesn't matter how religious you are, if you're walking and doing it without God's help and God's power. That means schmutz. Our gracious Father, we thank you today for your kindness to us. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, found all of the riches that can be found in life. Help us never to be so deceived, so blinded by the evil one, that we would simply seek the things of this world and not the Savior who made it, who redeemed us with his own blood. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who does not have the assurance that if this were their last day on earth, that they would go to heaven. I pray by the Spirit of God, because without His help, they'll never see, that He would help them to understand that they cannot redeem themselves and earn heaven by anything they might ever do. For you said in your word that if a man could be saved by deeds, then Christ died in vain. Help them to understand today that in His own body on the cross, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, he bore our sin and took all of its wrath and you were satisfied. And you raised him from the dead, proving to all men everywhere that he is Lord so you can promise whoever will call upon his name will be saved. I wonder today if you would come like a child, taking God at his word, knowing that he cannot lie, and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help someone today, Father, to do that. Help them to be willing to openly confess him before men. And help us who know you to recognize that you have a plan for our life, a wonderful plan. We pray and ask that we might be men and women of God, boys and girls, teenagers, who are filled with the Spirit and filled with the Word, that we would have discernment, to know when to speak, when not to speak, how to act, how not to act, that we might invest our lives in things that are truly eternal. For the glory of God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures 
at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 021. Don't forget that tomorrow, if you have a question for Dr. Carl Brogy, you can call between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line on WAGP.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.